latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it. Coming up on our program today, UPS with a big announcement. They are expanding their service and coverage throughout rural America. We'll get the latest on that. More reaction to the signing of USMCA, how it impacts more segments of agriculture. Uh, We talk a lot, of course, about corn and soybeans and hogs and cattle. Well, we're going to talk about apples and potatoes today, the impact on those sectors of U.S. agriculture. And we'll check in with the National Milk Producers Federation to get an update on the ongoing battle over dairy labeling and these imitation products use of terms like dairy and milk we'll get the latest on that coming up on today's program but we're going to start things off talking trade today with dave salmonson senior director congressional relations for the american farm bureau federation dave uh, we finally have usmca signed now all eyes on canada how are things going there Well, yes, it all turns to Canada next. Uh, They have introduced uh, legislation in their parliament. Expectations are working through their system. This could be done sometime uh, in March, uh, be ratified by Canada then. And then there's further processes that have to be done among the three countries. They have to determine that they've met some of their obligations uh, ahead of time for Mexico, of course, that means some of the things they've agreed to do in labor, such as uh, you know, independent unions, collective bargaining. They have to show some progress to that. Auto rules of origin and such that all three countries agreed to have to be uh, you know, implemented in, uh, in U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And once that, that is done and they've exchanged documents uh, asserting all that among themselves, this will finally uh, go into force. So this uh, could be happening sometime this summer. So... Well, we think, you know, the major political hurdle was uh, achieved here with passage in our Congress, signing, uh, of course, by President Trump yesterday. It's still got a ways to go before USMCA can fully replace NAFTA. Now, is this correct? After Canada ratifies it, and we don't know yet how long that will take, but after they ratify it, then it still takes another 90 days before it goes into effect? Yeah, there has there there at least that there there are some other procedures that have to happen, uh, as I said, uh, obligations that each country has to be sure the other countries are doing. So that just takes a while uh, with this. But again, again, this could go into effect uh, this summer. Okay, let's uh, look to some other areas we're hearing that the administration is working on. Obviously. Europe, uh, Secretary Purdue's been in Europe and discussing uh, the differences that are rather significant between the U.S. and uh, the European Union. It it seems still like this would be a heavy lift uh, to get a trade deal done with Europe, but uh, they are trying. Well, they are trying, and uh, realize after tomorrow, January 31st, the European Union will not be the European Union we've known these last uh, 46-plus years. Britain will be out. They'll be on their own. So uh, a little different uh, makeup in the European Union uh, going forward. In fact, very different. Uh, The issues in agriculture, uh, remember how long we've been dealing with these issues. In fact, the U.S. and Europe have had differences over trade in poultry uh, going back to the mid-60s. 
um, and that's been an ongoing back and forth. And, of course, you had beef and pork, uh, GMO labeling, geographic indications. You know, there's other issues. Europeans have issues on their side. They're trying to get products in that we've uh, held up over the years. So there's plenty to talk about. There is a lot of history behind all of these uh, all of these discussions and disputes, but that's what's on the table there for agriculture. And of course, even though the Europeans have been loath to talk about it, and uh, so far there's always the issue of tariffs. They have higher tariffs uh, on our agricultural imports than we have on theirs, so that's an issue that also is a barrier to getting into market. So. And that's just the ag side. There's lots of other issues that would go for uh, even a leaner deal versus a comprehensive agreement. So, but this ground's been all been all gone over before. Remember the TTIP, Transatlantic Trade and Investment mm-hmm. Partnership negotiations from 2013 through 2016 covered all these areas of standards and tariffs and all the ag issues. So, um, this, in a sense, is going going back to that and trying to make progress. But we've got, a, again, a new political dynamic in Europe. Um, at the same time, of course, the United Kingdom has to work on a trade deal with the EU, try to get that done this year. That's their goal. U.S. wants to do a trade deal with uh, the United Kingdom. So uh, you've got a lot of cross-currents uh, here between Brussels, London, and Washington uh, in 2020. Meanwhile, there seems to be a real effort by the administration to get something done with India. What are you hearing there? Well, yes, there is. Uh, there has been ongoing talks with what they're calling, you know, a limited deal on uh, a couple issue areas, agriculture uh, being one of those, medical devices, uh, some data issues there. Trying to get a deal with India, you know, the president is planning, President Trump is planning a trip to India uh, the end of February, so I'm sure there is a, a tension there. Remember that last year the U.S. uh, basically withdrew what's called the General System of Preferences from India. Uh, They'd had that uh, ability to export some product tariff-free to us for a long time. The U.S. stopped that and is saying we'll restore that as long as we get basically the same amount of access into India as they have through that program into the U.S. So that's part of the negotiation. And, uh, again, there is here, it seems to be, a bit of a, a time pressure trying to see if there's some sort of a deal that can be reached uh, in the next month or so. So we'll be watching that closely. And they're talking in the ag space about pork exports, dairy products, some fruits, uh, fruit issues, fruit and veg issues. So, uh, again, there's there's potential there, but it would be a very commodity-specific and a fairly limited uh, approach to a trade deal with India. Meanwhile, a deal that is in place and looks to already be working is the U.S.-Japan deal. Well, yes, it is. Of course, that came into effect January 1st. Tariffs on a wide range of products immediately were either eliminated or reduced. You know, the whole point of that was to make sure we weren't uh, disadvantaged against the other countries that were in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Canada, Australia are, uh, you know, prime among them. Uh, The European Union had done a trade deal with Japan where their tariffs were being lowered. So we've uh, slotted in the same level as those countries uh, on the reductions. We'll get the same reduction pattern and schedule over the next several years. So I know I think we won't be losing market share. Uh, Our wheat producers were very concerned about that. There's more to go. There's more to do. Uh, We're looking forward to a Phase 2 trade negotiation with Japan that can start in May. Um, We didn't get everything that we were looking for in dairy products, rice, 
And we also need to look at some of the rules changes that weren't included in Phase 1 that would benefit ag trade. But a, a good start with Japan, um, and uh, we're looking forward to our trade with Japan increasing even more. Always something happening with trade and a lot going on right now in particular. Dave, thanks for the update. Okay, anytime. Take care. Take care. Dave Salmonson, Senior Director, Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Up next, big announcement from UPS, expanding service in rural America. We'll get the details. That's next. Stay with us here on AOA. information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams and welcome back a couple of notes uh, i'm going to be spending some time in texas the next couple of weeks next week next thursday and friday i will be in san antonio for the big cattle industry convention Lots to talk about there, and then the following week I'll be in Houston for the National Ethanol Conference, and certainly plenty to talk about in the ethanol industry. So a couple of trips to Texas here the next two weeks with special coverage here on AOA. Well, there's been a big announcement by UPS expanding their coverage into rural America. Joining us now is Robin Hooker, Director of Global Product Innovation for UPS. Robin, thank you for joining us. Tell us about uh, this big announcement. Good morning, Mike. Really excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, We are adding new locations, uh, 15,000 package express centers uh, in rural America as what we call UPS access point locations. Uh, the 15,000 package express centers, uh, just for your listeners, are um, typically counters that exist in small businesses in rural America. So imagine an independent pharmacy, lots of hardware stores, and there's a little counter within that allows you to ship UPS. Now these locations will be activated as alternate delivery and pickup locations for your listeners. What that means ultimately is that if you have something that you need to route, and you can't be home to sign for it, you can route it to an access point as an alternate location, or if you have something that you need to return, you can take it back to one of these uh, small businesses and return the package there with drop-off. So you are expanding your reach into rural and what you call super rural locations. Uh, Tell us about that, uh, uh, the description, super rural. What does that mean? Well, that's where we, that's our most remote geographic classification. And UPS is really looking to make sure that everybody can play in e-commerce. Everybody has an access channel, not only to receive, but also to pick up packages and return them as well. And the key thing here, I think, for your listeners is there may be technicians that support farm equipment, and they may be traveling, and they may be doing a route through rural America, needing to get parts in and also return maybe a defective part, do a swap. Uh, These access points allow those types of technicians to receive and drop off and pick up um, critical uptime components that might support farm uh, processes. So really, you're reaching into some underserved areas, areas that are uh, really 
you know, have been strapped for these kind of services would have to travel quite a distance before to maybe have access to this kind of service. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that these businesses exist within a small business, that these little package counters exist within a small business really means that, you know, you're you're saving the consumer time as well. They're able to knock off a couple checklist items with their errands and then take care of their logistics and their shipping needs as well. We're excited about the value proposition for what this offers because it gets us closer to um, our goal of having 100% of the U.S. population covered within five miles of an access point. So this will take us from 90% coverage to 92 uh, by the end of 2020. We're talking with Robin Hooker with UPS. Robin, how can people find out uh, if this impacts their area or where they could go now uh, that they could not before for this service? Mike, this is a great question. So we have something called the UPS Global Locator. And the Global Locator is part of our website. It will allow you to go in and look for locations by entering your zip code. It will give you an array of locations that are near, near, near you know, where you've entered your address or zip. And that gives you an opportunity to find the locations nearest to you. Now, the Package Express centers that we've announced, these 1,500 new ones, they are not fully deployed yet. We have about 50 up and running that we piloted. It went very, very successfully. Um, but in the same vein, we're still doing the rollout, which will take place throughout 2020. But in the meantime, your listeners can take the, check the locator for locations that are nearby. And the Package Express Center does offer full-service shipping. Uh, what, what we're activating now is the, the ability to reroute a package to that location uh, for alternate pickup and also to offer a drop-off solution as well. Can you give us some examples of the types of places, locations, uh, stores, or businesses where these services will now be offered? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Package Express aligns with uh, independent pharmacies, hardware stores, and, uh, you know, several brands of independent or franchise model hardware stores where it's an independent, independent business owner. Um, these, this model works really, really well because for the store, they appreciate the additional foot traffic that uh, shipping and drop-off offer. And at the same time, it's very convenient for the consumer um, because they're able to, you know, like I said earlier, accomplish a couple of different items on their checklist for, you know, the to-do list for today and at the same time receive or pick up packages. You know, we often talk about the challenges in rural America and people in some parts of rural America really feeling disconnected, whether it be from the Internet or from medical services or whatever it may be. This is another way to connect those areas, right? I mean, this helps residents there, helps businesses there, maybe will attract residents or businesses in the future. Yeah, absolutely. This is a foothold uh, for logistics and e-commerce so that everybody can participate. And if you really think about it, these locations serve as little tiny community hubs because a lot of people go in and out to take care of their shipping and logistics needs. And I think you're hearing now more and more that e-commerce is not just about ordering something online and receiving it, that you're ordering something and, and in many cases you might be ordering various colors and sizes. You keep most of what you order and some of it gets returns. And that's standard now. That's becoming, you know, the notion that the home is the fitting room or the home is the showroom for a product and you're sort of testing it 
Um, that's built into a lot of the business operating models of a lot of uh, pure play e-commerce players and also the brick and mortar players that also have an e-commerce strategy as well. So, so that notion of, of this return and, and sort of um, uh, circuit of, of, you know, package input and also package output from the home, uh, we're seeing that as a growing trend. And, and we also know that, you know, from the agricultural side, there's a lot of stuff that goes in and out of the farm. Uh, and some of that stuff supports critical uptime machinery, et cetera. And, and that's a key component as well. You mentioned that part of your goal to reach uh, the entire country. Uh, so this is part of a, a plan of your of continued expansion by UPS, right? Definitely, uh, there will be more to come uh, as we uh, you know phase out our expansion cycle. Uh, we are excited about the direction that we're headed, and uh, as we approach uh, full coverage. Uh, of the population within five miles. Uh, we also have intentions in the more urbanized areas to get better coverage there uh, where things are more walkable, right? And, and, and just being very, very accessible in areas where, where the model isn't driving and it's walkability. Uh, we want full coverage in the urban areas too, but we're building out nationwide coverage now within five miles. Uh, the package express centers and the 15,000 locations uh, get us from 90 to 92%. So that's really, really exciting. How did you pick the where these 1,500 uh, package express centers uh, will be joining the UPS access point network? How did you pick those locations? Those locations were picked. Uh, package Express uh, basically manages relationships with these small businesses to set up these shipping counters on the behalf of UPS. And we made the arrangement with PEC. We have a very strong relationship with that group and also with the small businesses that operate the uh, UPS shipping counters within those. Um, and, and it was basically a matter of meeting with them and looking for you know, optimal locations. Uh, we'd already tested 50. Those were doing very, very well. Uh, and it was just time to expand further. Uh, the selection uh, was basically uh, based on the locations that were interested in participating. Uh, there are maybe uh, you know a few hundred more that I think are going to be part of a future phase, uh, but the 1500 is the first phase. Well, I think it's exciting news. Anytime we can reach out and connect uh, rural America, especially those areas that have been underserved, this is a, a big step, a big announcement from uh, UPS. Robin, thank you very much. Mike, thank you very much. We appreciate the time to talk a little bit about what we're doing. Take care. All right. Very good. Robin Hooker, Director of Global Products Innovation for UPS. Again, big announcement as UPS expanding its uh, reach into rural America, providing these uh, services for areas that uh, may not have been served or, or at least not conveniently served uh, in the past. All right. Stay with us. Coming up next, more reaction to the signing of USMCA, how it impacts U.S. agriculture. That's next on AOA. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. 
Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. We continue to get reaction to the signing of USMCA and how it impacts different segments of U.S. agriculture. We have two guests with us now. Jim Baer is president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Also with us is Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Gentlemen, welcome both of you to Adams on Agriculture once again. Jim, I'll start with you. Your reaction to to the signing and what this means for the apple industry. Hi, Mike. Uh, Yeah, this was a huge win for U.S. agriculture. Mexico and Canada are the number one and two markets for many U.S. ag products, and that certainly includes apples. We normally export a billion dollars worth of apples around the world, and half of that uh, goes to Mexico and Canada. So this is a, a huge win, one that we sorely needed. And Cam, from the potato perspective, what's the significance of USMCA? Uh, Mike, very, very similar to to what Jim sees for his apple producers for the potato industry, Mexico and Canada. They're the number two and three largest export markets for us. Uh, collectively, over five hundred and fifty million dollars in annual exports. So, stabilizing these markets, renewing the terms of trade. Uh, 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 it's not really a revolution from NAFTA, but it's an evolution, a very necessary one. Uh, that These are all real positives for us. So we're, we're very excited we got this thing to the finish line. Yeah, you touched on something there I wanted to ask about, Cam. Uh, how much different is, for, for your, in your perspective, from the potato industry's perspective, how much different is USMCA from NAFTA? Well, you know, when you when you look at the growth of both Mexico and Canada under NAFTA, it 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 was working very very well for us. So, uh, simply renewing the terms of trade and updating them to some degree to, rec- to reflect that it was a uh, a a 25 year old agreement that we were dealing with. Um, those were all the, the, those are those are necessary steps. Um, there are some incremental improvements that are embedded within USMCA relating to how uh, all countries will deal with pest and disease issues. And a lot of those pest and disease issues, those are going to be the trade barriers of the future, particularly for the fruit and vegetable industry. Uh, that, that will, as tariffs, as tariffs decline, the, the use of, of uh, faulty science by certain countries to protect their markets will become a bigger and bigger challenge for the United States. Jim, your thoughts uh, from the apple industry's perspective, much change. Uh, uh, what would the improvements of USMCA be over NAFTA for you? Well, we loved NAFTA. Honestly, uh, we may have been at the at the forefront of, of extolling the virtues of, of NAFTA because we quadrupled our apple exports to Mexico and we doubled our exports to Canada. So it was hard for us to see that we were going to increase our markets or market share much beyond that. But the importance of the, of this new agreement is just locking those gains in at least for the next 16 years. Um, that's one distinction. Whereas NAFTA was permanent law until Congress would decide to change it. 
this agreement has a 16-year sunset provision, um, and so at least we've locked in for another 16 years those important gains that U.S. agriculture, and particularly for for apples. So we were we were thrilled with with NAFTA, and we're happy to get it back under USMCA. Jim, what's your outlook for for the apple industry for 2020? Uh, are you expecting a, a big year for exports, or, or what do you think is going to happen this year? Well, we think with the signing of USMCA and the signing of the Phase One deal with China, that those are both going to be um, positive. But it's going to take a while, I think, to get back up to the velocity of trade that we were enjoying up until, say, 18 months ago. I describe it as being like stuck on a on a interstate highway, and the traffic is stop and go. And the the accident that caused the stoppage may have been cleared off to the side of the road two hours ago, but it takes you quite a while to get back up to 60 miles an hour. And I think that's kind of what we're going to be facing here. Is it's it's uh it's not going to be instantaneous, but it's going to be an important signal to growers so that at least they can plan on uh, that what was uh, you know half of our export market and one third of our of our total uh, production was going export so it's an important signal but it's not going to be immediate but we've got our eye on the on the horizon and we're just going to keep plugging away and this will uh, this agreement will allow our growers to get back to doing what they do best which is to ship premium products uh best prices all over the world and how big of a share of a market are exports for apple growers here in the US. We normally would export about a third of our crop and uh, our exports are down about a third. So that means in the last 18 months we've lost about one sixth of our markets and we're anxious to get those back. This agreement will go a long way uh, in returning uh, Mexico and Canada to their rightful spot as number one and two. And then next, we're anxious to see uh, India, uh, which is number three, and China, number six. We're anxious to see those markets uh, get back to where they were. The tariffs in India for U.S. apples are now 70%. The tariffs in China are 60%. So that's our next goal. That's our next objective. We, we're, we're anxious to see the administration uh, you know, push hard on those and get those markets back, too. Cam, what's the outlook uh, this year for exports for the potato growers? Well, we're the, clearing away some of the volatility that Jim indicated. We, we were seeing that same thing, too, for, uh, for potato exports. You know, when you looked around the world, um, the, the markets that were potentially going to be compromised by all of this trade, all these trade challenges, you know, you're talking about fully half of our exports could, could have been threatened. Um, getting USMCA done is a great signal that, that the U.S. can get uh, these deals to the finish line. Now we really want to focus. You know, the China Phase One Agreement was was a, a, a good announcement. There were some potato-specific provisions that were included in it. Um, what we really want to focus, though, on is essentially we were ratcheting tariffs up in uh, China and the U.S. kind of in a tit-for-tat manner. That just froze those tariffs where they were, but they're still at an elevated level. We, we, we want to see the two sides get together, um, reduce those tariffs back to the, to the competitive levels that we were at before, also expand market access um, to valuable markets, Japan, China, uh, Mexico, 
um, the potential that's out there for the potato industry, if we get these market access agreements right, is is really significant. You're talking about uh, a huge expansion of opportunities to, to export, particularly in the chipping and the fresh potato markets. Um, right now, we're moving about 20% of our overall volume has to find a home in foreign markets. And um, by, by further opening these valuable export markets, that, uh, that, that number is going to increase if we can get it right. Another issue I know that you'll be addressing, Jim, we'll start with you uh, from the Apple perspective. That's the labor issue. Uh, that'll be huge uh, for you to be able to take advantage of these opportunities in trade. Oh, absolutely. We were so happy and excited that the House of Representatives back on December 19th passed the, the ag labor bill. A lot of people said it couldn't be done. Uh, it was remarkable to see liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans come together in a way that hasn't been done in a few years in Washington, D.C., and they put aside their their uh, overheated political uh uh, disagreements for the moment and passed a bill that has tremendous uh, promise for, for U.S. agriculture. It would, it would address the wage issue. It would, uh, it would also make a, a path for the workers that are here illegally to come out of the shadows, pay a significant fine to get right with the law, and then, and then be able to work legally. And it also would include for the year-round agriculture like dairy and confinement agriculture and so forth, the first time that they'll have access to a legal labor pool. So it was really important. So now our attention uh, moves to the Senate. We've got a couple of Senate champions that are already writing up a bill. We think it'll actually be more friendly to agriculture. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we're anxious to see that happen, get the two uh, houses together, iron out any differences in a bill and get it to the president's desk for signature. And that would that would just be an absolutely enormous uh, accomplishment in this white hot political environment to get something done for agriculture that's been overdue for for 25 years or more. Cam, labor a key issue for potato growers too? It's it's really been growing in its importance, Mike. Um, uh, Now, as we go around the country, labor is the top one or two issues combined with what we've just been talking about with trade. So uh, we work very closely in uh, a coalition uh, across U.S. agriculture that that uh, uh, Jim's organization is involved in, the National Potato Council is involved in that. Uh, we've, we've been spending a tremendous amount of time trying to get that House bill to the finish line. Um, as he indicated, it's not, a, it's not a perfect bill, but really nothing that we deal with is ever, is ever perfect. Um, now the, we, the Senate has the opportunity to improve on it. Um, much like how we deal with a farm bill every five years, mm-hmm. you, you take the good provisions you can pass in the House, the good ones in the Senate, um, you, 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 you fix them up in, in conference, and you hopefully deliver a, a bill to the president's desk that's actually going to matter. So we're, we're, pretty, right. we're pretty excited about this opportunity. We'll be watching that closely. Our thanks to Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council, and Jim Baer, President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Stay with us. More to come here on AOA.
Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, the dairy industry's battle to protect their name, their brand, uh, as the use of terms and names like dairy and milk continue to be used by imitation products. Well, that battle continues. And with an update, joining us now is the Senior Vice President for Environmental and Regulatory Affairs for the National Milk Producers Federation, Clay Detlefson. Clay, thank you for joining us. Uh, bring us up to date. Uh, Congress is looking into this as well, right? Congress is, uh, and uh, we are continuing our dialogue uh, with the Food and Drug Administration. But uh, before that, good morning, Mike. Nice to hear your voice. Uh, what is happening with FDA? Are they doing anything? Well, last year, FDA had a docket open where they solicited information from stakeholders about their understanding of these products, these fake dairy products that are out there. In particular, they were focusing on the nutritional aspects. So I think National Milk's very pleased that the Food and Drug Administration started looking at that aspect because Commissioner Gottlieb had noticed, uh, I guess, a year and a half ago that uh, they're all of a sudden seeing nutritional deficiency diseases in children. And the belief was that that is linked up with folks buying products that purport to be milk but do not have the nutritional equivalency. And, in fact, many or most of those fake dairy products are vastly nutritionally inferior, and it's causing human health problems. So we've, we've changed the dialogue to the public health issue and FDA is contemplating what to do about it. We filed a petition last year explaining what they should do and how they should go about it, and again, asking them to enforce the standards of identity to prevent children from getting malnourished. You're asking them to basically enforce what's already on the books, right? And that's been a challenge to get that done. That is correct, and we've been basically asking for that since the late 1970s. But I think yeah. we're getting closer. Yeah, there was a lot of hope last year that finally FDA was kind of seeing the light on this, was going to take action. But as you say, here we are now still waiting. Uh, you're hopeful then that we'll see some action from FDA this year? We are hopeful, um, but that's also why we are maintaining a dialogue with our congressional representatives to get them to nudge FDA as well. And, and I'll also point out that a lot of state legislatures are getting a little bit fed up with uh FDA's lack of enforcement, and you're seeing a lot of pieces of legislation starting to move through, you know, the state legislatures to basically do what we're asking. What are you hoping to see from Congress? Uh, I mean, they have hearings. Uh, what do you hope to see come out of this? Oh, my perfect day would be them passing the Dairy Pride Act. Mm -hmm. um, we've wanted that for a long time. Trying to get anything through Congress is difficult, so I'm not optimistic that would happen this year. But I thought yesterday's hearings were fantastic and uh, quite enjoyable from a dairy perspective. What is the biggest hurdle in getting the Dairy Pride Act passed? Getting bipartisan support and getting enough senators and congressmen on board. Uh, the other side's got a lot of power as well. Uh, a lot of venture capital and, and billionaires involved in the plant-based movement. So they don't want to see us move forward with the Dairy Pride Act. Which 
the Dairy Pride Act, for those not familiar, basically protects the names of dairy and milk, those terms for uh, real dairy, right? I mean, uh, uh, not imitation products. Correct. It basically tells FDA you need to enforce the law. Uh, your own rules that have been on the books for four decades or more. We are starting to see the pork industry speak out as uh, these companies are using the name pork. Uh, We know the beef industry is speaking out. Dairy's been doing it for some time. I mean, obviously, uh, this is a real issue that is growing uh, in the marketplace. And I know you, like the others, are saying you're not opposing these uh the right for these companies to have a place in the marketplace but just don't be using your name yeah dairy industry has to follow the rules these other folks need to follow the rules it's really funny if you look at it if if a dairy processor has anything wrong with the information on their packaging their labeling fda will call them out in an instant but a plant-based food manufacturer can do whatever they want it's the wild wild west and fda won't touch them and that is simply unacceptable. You know, some would say, well, what's the big deal if uh, a plant-based product uses milk or, or dairy in their labeling or in their name? I mean, uh, what's, what's that hurt? Well, obviously they see a value in it or they wouldn't be trying to use it, right? And that's a value that uh, your industry has built up over uh, generations. You're 100% correct in that, and again, the, the negative on them doing it is they are misleading consumers about the nutritional aspects of those products, and that lack of nutritional equivalency is causing diseases like kwashiorkor and rickets and failure to thrive because these kids are not getting a nutritious diet that dairy products deliver. Because in many cases, these new products, these imitation products, are are trying to sell a, a healthy, uh, uh, that's kind of their platform, that the, somehow their product is are healthier. Absolutely. And, and All right. Tom Bomber was testifying before Congress yesterday, Tom's with National Milk, and one of the things he pointed out, the uh, almond beverages that are in the marketplace uh, have this reputation of being really healthy products. Milk has eight times the amount of protein per serving. They are not nutritionally equivalent, and people just don't understand that. Yeah, I've said all along that as these new products come into the marketplace, will they hold up to the scrutiny? And I guess uh, part of that is how much scrutiny will they get, or will consumers be misled and just accept them on face value? So we'll see how that goes. Clay, thank you for the update. We really appreciate it. Mike, thank you very much for the time today. Appreciate it. Take Take care. Clay Detlefson, he is Senior Vice President, Environmental Regulatory Affairs and Staff Counsel for the National Milk Producers Federation. Thank you for joining us. That's all the time we have for today. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA.